Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time on a Friday. I'm sure a lot of you have a lot of things to come back to, so we'll keep this snappy. Um, a little bit of context about me. Very quickly, I was the first UK distributor of the Arduino, which is an education electronics platform, open source software, open source hardware. Um, and that's where I suppose I cut my teeth in the world of trying to make things talk to other things. That culminated in a product called the Goodnight Lamp, which is a family of lamps. You have a big lamp and a little lamp, so you give the little lamps away to anybody around the world. And when you turn the big lamp on, the little ones turn on. So if you have a family member in a different time zone to let them know that now's a good time for a chat, you're available right now. Just a very simple way of sharing presence and availability with family members who might not have Wi-Fi in their homes, might be living in rural areas, or really trying to build a common and easy way of sharing presence. I also run the IoT Meetup in London, which is now the second largest meetup in the world around this area. It's a free meetup uh, in London that's been running since 2011 now. And I've been involved in steering a project called Better IoT, which is trying to lead the way in helping startups uh, make good IoT uh, design actionable. And actionable with one N, sorry about that. I'm also, as of uh, two months ago, head of labs at Bulb. Bulb is a renewable energy company based in uh, East London and uh, that sells renewable energy to over uh, 850,000 households in the UK now. But what I'll talk about today are some of the thoughts from the book uh, that I have just written and has just been published by A-Press. And initially, my, the title was How Technology Has Changed uh, Your Home Life, and it became Will Change Your Home Life, I think because my editors were very keen to sell more copies, and they thought, the future sells. I actually think that history also sells. And so I'll share with you a few of the things that I talk about in the book, which I think are important both for technologists to consider, uh, for designers to consider, and also as we are in uh, the Open Data Institute for the community around the ODI to consider. Um, I'll start with really a trope and a common trope, which I think is extremely important to consider and important to think about, which is uh, the home is a system. I think a lot of designers, a lot of technologists will tend to consider the home as a systematically understandable and mathematically understandable space. And I'll show you examples of how that has, um, that methodology and that thinking has translated over time. The first um, period of this is really in the late 1800s uh, when science was developing, chemistry, physics, all these uh, areas of our lives were becoming more and more professionalized, a group of people was really looking at the home space and trying to figure out how these emerging scientific areas related to the home. Um, they did so in a number of different ways. A less elegant way, which we still have with us in some parts of the world, is home economics. Um, home economics is a leftover of that particular period where it emerged as a way of telling either servants or housewives how to run a home. That culminated in this idea of the home being a space for efficiency. Um, why the word efficiency? Well, Taylorism was happening, factory floors were 
becoming part of a space that was designed to be more or less efficient. Time-based studies were being conducted where people were timed for each and every task and the idea of a workspace being efficient bled into the home. So people, especially in uh, the East Coast of the United States, started doing studies around the home and doing time-based studies around the home, publishing around these topics, sharing their thoughts, sharing their findings. The one that is the most well-known is Christine Fredericks, who started publishing very actively in 1919. But there were um, communities of people around her, including um, the people I mentioned on this slide, Charles and Mary Barnard, Georgie and George Boynton, and Mary Pattinson, who turned their own homes into experimental stations, was the word that was often used <clears throat> at the time. And they published pamphlets, they did what I'm doing today, which is lecturing, uh, because literacy at that point was about 70%, so you would go into spaces and talk to them about ideas as opposed to necessarily publish books. But Christine Fredericks published books. One of her books, um, which was on housekeeping, um, is the one where this image comes from, which is an image of the most efficient layout for a kitchen. So she started timing herself in her own home, um, a home that she owned on Long Island in the, U the United States, um, right outside of New York City. And she figured out the most effective way of running a kitchen. That was not necessarily for a, a home and um, a traditional home in the sense that we know it now, which is uh, possibly um, a couple and children, but it was for a servant and or a housewife that possibly had one servant. If you had one servant, you were sort of in a middle class of sorts. Usually you had two or three if you were doing much better. Uh, but this idea that that activity needed to be, become more efficient was very front of mind. And I don't think that that idea has particularly aged well. The idea of laying out a specific home space for it to be more efficient isn't part and parcel of how we do domestic interior design now, but it is absolutely how we sell products to people still today. We have this idea of efficiency in mind that is a leftover of that world, but we don't necessarily lay things out um, in a way that is most efficient. Another uh, area that took this idea of a systematically understood uh, home is the Electronics Association of Women, which was a British group of women who started publishing a magazine that is part of the archives at the Institute of Engineers and Technologists in the UK, which is a fantastic archive. And these were women who were interested in electrification. And electrification comes in in the early 20th century, um, it starts to ramp up really in the 20s, and it keeps ramping up all the way to the 50s, uh, weirdly. It took a lot of time. And they published a magazine trying to convince predominantly women who were literate and possibly middle class, had a servant but were starting to become servantless homes, and people used to qualify and call their books uh, for servantless households. Uh, which is not something we would ever do today. Um, but they were selling the idea of the electric home. And the electric home was a home that had electrification through and through. Wiring had all been redone. Appliances were put in. And uh, lighting was also put in, which was a big sell. And it was 
a really tremendous change for, from the reality of people's homes at the time. So amongst other things, they uh, ran a competition, which was the Free Electric House Competition. You could sign up, um, put your name in a... Uh, in a, uh, this competition or, or send in your name and you would either win 2,000 pounds or this entire home made electric. The winner uh, that was announced the month after this competition was announced chose the 2,000 pounds. And so even the idea of this whole brand new world that you were going to be able to buy into was so strange and so, in a sense, unappetizing um, that that's not quite how electrification happened. Um, they learned from this, and a few years later, in 1935, they did not run a competition, but they engaged with a modern architect to build a demonstration home of the electric living uh, in Bristol. And this is a home that people could visit. So they could go and snoop around to see what exactly we meant when we meant electrification in the home. Um, this received 15,000 visitors, which at the time is quite a lot of people taking the train and coming into Bristol to see this home. And this home was in uh, the outskirts of Bristol, so not really in the center of town. So that shows you that they reacted to this idea that maybe this is too much of a hard sell. This idea that I'm gonna change my whole life in one go, I'm gonna change the way in which I live um, and embrace all these technologies at once doesn't really work that way. People wanna be able to be inspired and buy piecemeal, but they don't buy as a whole. Um, this learning doesn't translate over time because people tend to forget the things that they or their peers know. So if we uh, sort of flash forward to 1987, a project in the United States called the Smart House Project is born. It is born out of an event that is run by the British uh, Association of Home Builders, sorry, the American Association of Home Builders. Uh, they put together an event that's a cross-disciplinary event trying to talk about new connected uh, capabilities in the home, what the early stages of computing and home computing might mean for the home, and how we might rewire our homes to use these computing technologies to live in a completely new way. They run an event, they call it the Smart House event, and 3,000 to 5,000 people attend this event, which for an industry event is quite a large number of people. They see in this uh, a real opportunity, and so they trademark the term Smart House. And they, they sue anybody who uses that term, and this is the US, so they have a, they're very good at suing people for things. Um, and they uh, really protect the use of that word for quite a long period of time. They um, also take advantage of a tax cut at the time and a change in the law that made it quite easy for consortium-type projects to take place. So you could work with people who would have notionally been your competitors in a consortium and do some research. And that was something that, was, uh, that became kind of built into the federal um, financing infrastructure in the U.S. And they decide we're going to build these smart houses, we're going to equip these houses, and we're going to build um, 10 to 15 across the country and really do some research around what we could be building collaboratively, etc. This sounds very familiar to us if um, from today because EU funding and UK funding really works in those kinds of ways. Um, they build three houses before the project dies. 
for a number of reasons and a number of dynamics in um, the consortium itself. But there's no real appetite coming out of that particular project beyond the use of the word smart home, because that was the only way in which you weren't going to get sued by these people that had trademarked smart house. So that expression of smart home really emerges in the 90s and not really mentioned before that at all. There's still one of these homes that is uh, standing, left standing uh, in the United States, which until very recently uh, was the home of a company called um, Vivint, I think, uh, which is a smart home middleware platform. Uh, so in a sense, the history of that particular project still exists. But this idea, again, of buying wholesale in a way, a completely new way of living and selling that to consumers just didn't quite catch on. Another example at that same period of time is something called IBM Director. An IBM Director was a complete rebuild of your home using IBM technologies that would allow you to do home automation X, Y, and Z. Again, not a project that we particularly remember because it just didn't find, um, it didn't find that market. We, again, keep forgetting the tropes and kind of keep trying over and over again. And so the WikiHouse project is an open source project where you are invited to think of the home of something that is downloadable to a degree. You can download files, get them uh, made by a CNC provider, and it creates the frame of a home. And this is meant to be a more accessible way of building a home and also uh, an open source way. So uh, the home becomes a digital part in a digital journey that happens to have a physical instantiation. And this is in principle uh, a really interesting project and they have built a number, they've built a number of uh, existing structures, but the WikiHouse farmhouse is the only current standing structure that is lived in. And that is really inhabited by a couple who um, have been building it over the, a period of about three, four years. Um, they almost have moved in now. They've documented their entire journey on a blog. And putting up the frame itself with these files took about, I think, uh, two weeks with friends and volunteers to really literally do a barn raising in a sense. Uh, but actually putting in everything else has taken three, four years. Because it turns out that a home is not just a set of sort of drawable uh, elements. It is also a set of very expensive and very complicated other bits and pieces that, again, someone might buy piecemeal. Um, another, I think, learning that I think is really important uh, that I think people forget about in some sense in the design sector is that the size of a home really matters to what you can design in that home. Um, in the mid-1800s, this is a picture from the um, Black Country Museum, uh, which is in the middle of this country. It's really, really great museum. And this is the average home appliance landscape in the mid-1800s. Um, there is a fire range which uh, heats up whenever there's any heat sort of uh, a little fire is put together with about as much coal as you could afford. Um, the whole thing heats up, which means you can do a little bit of cooking. You're not really doing a huge amount of cooking. You're heating up the kettle. You might be putting on some toast, but you're really doing the very basics. 
And you um, might also be ironing for whatever reason. There's like four irons here. Um, but this qualifies as, you know, the average home. There's a bed. There might be um, a mattress underneath that for children. But people are working in an industrialized landscape. They're working in factories. They're working in shifts. So there's never really a full house, per se. And eating really happens outside of the home. So we do a lot of eating on the go. We use the city and its infrastructure. And so the home is really the place where you just end up having, you know, sleeping putting on something and then heading out the door. Uh, we weirdly still, I think, in some places in our life, really want to still interact with our homes in this way. And so uh, after the uh, 20th century comes in, we start to talk about minimal living and minimal housing and minimum housing because we are always trying to somehow strip down to the essentials. Um, but the essentials is really in the eye of the beholder. So the average UK prison cell, which is shared usually by two people, is the size more or less of a co-living space, which are fancy apartments sold to young people who have just moved to the capital uh, in East London right now. And we have this, I think, a really strange... Uh, relationship to space and what qualifies as good enough space or enough space. Uh, we also have reduced in uh, family sizes with the decades and the years, but have increased in space that we actually have available in some parts of the world. So this is an American model where the size of the average size of a home is uh, 450 square feet in 1850 and, um, you know, four times that in 2003. But we absolutely don't have that many children, um, any, in the same amount of children as we would have squeezed into one place. And what have we done? Well, we create sub-homes. We have closed bedrooms. Um, everyone in the bedroom might have had a television in the 90s, and then it becomes a laptop, and then it becomes mobile phones. And we create mini-homes within the home. And we've complexified what qualifies as um, our private family space. Uh, we engage also a lot less with the city um, and uh, have brought in a lot of city services, and I'll come back to that. Um, what's my time like? Because I feel like I could go on forever. I'm 125. Okay, thank you. Um, and I think that some of the thinking now is not so much to think about minimal amount of space, and especially for the UK context, but an adaptable amount of space. So a project that um, I led was, was called The Good Home. One of the people that we worked with was Travis Perkins and Simon Saint, who uh, works at Woods Bagot, which is an architectural firm. And one of the ideas that they shared was the idea of buying the walls of your home, but renting the indoor walls of your home. So as your family grew, as your needs grew, the walls would change and you would change the indoor walls, but the actual complete amount of space that you had available was still the same. Because a child's bedroom can become your office later on or can become an open plan space when your child has left the house, for example. And so adaptable is something that is much more exciting to people, but minimal less so. I'm going to skip over these things to sort of focus on um, a key element, uh, 
which I think also relates to the ODI and what the ODI's work stands for in my mind, um, which is the idea of privacy. The idea of privacy in the home as being uh, something that is um, a notion that I think that we really struggle with. We like to think of our homes as private spaces that we are constantly sharing with others. Whether that is sharing on Instagram what we have bought and put in our homes, whether that is sharing on social media or using connected products which are posting online our use um, of uh, our thermostat, our heating, whatever it might be. We have this back and forth that is really interesting. Um, and to a degree, that is because we ultimately are always seeking to keep up with the Joneses, which is, I discovered an expression that comes out of a comic strip in 1913 to 38, uh, which was really the beginning of industrialization and the idea that what other people are buying are things that we do want to know about. We do want to go into someone's world and someone's private life and go, oh, they bought this thing, that's kind of interesting. And we used to do that very tangibly by visiting each other's homes, being, you know, going over to dinner in someone's place, and that's less the case now. Uh, in 2018, we now invest 10 times more in the refurbishment of our kitchens than we did 10 years ago, but we have people over 50% less than we did 10 years ago. So we will post online the kitchen that we have redone and therefore continue to compare ourselves to others in a way that feels very curated. So we don't need to worry about what's in the living room and hanging on the clothes horse in the middle of the room, but we can post the great refit that we've done in the kitchen. So we choose piecemeal what we share and what we don't with others. And that is really a, a story of uh, both an industry that is very keen to keep talking to us, which is the appliance sector, um, the technology sector at its largest, whether that is ceramic technology, carpet technology, all of these technologies are developing in their own ways. But also we live in an information age where speaking to and comparing ourselves with others is something that we've been doing for a long time. You could blame reality television. Um, the Family was a British show in 1974 that is the first reality TV show uh, in England and the American Family a year before in the US, following normal people's lives and being able to see a normal person's life was very different than seeing an ad for a 1950s um, embellished life. And it allowed us to pit ourselves against uh, a more normal setting. Uh, but it is a sort of visual intrusion into other people's lives. And that's an intrusion that we are always defining. So uh, Uninvited Guests by Superflux is an example I give in my book of an artistic landscape and a uh, design landscape that is really active at the minute and very, very active in the UK, very active in London. Uh, a lot of really talented artists and designers are thinking about the home space and the technology space. So Uninvited Guest is a short video following the life of an older man who has inherited smart products from his kids. And those products are things that he actually doesn't want to use. And so it's the story of him figuring out ways to keep his kids happy by faking the use of these connected products. 
it's really worth uh, looking at. But that is his family being somehow incapable of owning up to the fact that their father is really aging and they probably need to visit a bit more often than they do, and compensating with a degree of personal intrusion into his home life. So this cane, for example, is there because he's meant to use it to walk around the block at least 10,000 steps a day, something like that. So what does he do? He gives the cane to a young person who lives in his community and pays him with a can of lager. And so he invents ways for that intrusion to be disrupted because his personal life and the choices that he makes in his own life um, to a degree has nothing to do with what he wants to communicate to his children, no matter how much they care about him. Um, another intrusion of that personal life is what is happening in the uh, products that we have, which we're buying for a particular set of reasons, but might end up uh, doing something else entirely. So right now your home space has been pretty much mapped by Zoopla. If you go to Zoopla, the uh, real estate website of the UK, there are indoor maps of everybody's apartments that, as a PDF and as something that someone could easily build some intelligence around. But the granularity doesn't correspond to your life. It's the map of the space. Uh, the Roomba, which is a uh, vaguely efficient cleaning um, vacuum cleaner, uh, automated vacuum cleaner, does that same mapping, but more granularly, because it actually goes around your furniture, around your uh, space, your appliances. And that is data that they are currently looking to sell to Google. So you buy a particular product to do a particular thing, which is clean your floor, and it ends up doing something else entirely in a space that you had deemed private, and you had deemed the purchase of that product to a degree private. Um, and so breaking the barrier of what private and public means is the fact that this data anonymized any, makes it any more palatable to us. I'm not sure. Another artist who uh, is absolutely fantastic and will have a solo show uh, next year at um, Tate Britain is Mark Leckie. And Mark Leckie has a project called Green Screen Refrigerator which is essentially a monologue that a refrigerator goes through, speaking in a refrigerator or a smart fridge voice, speaking to itself and us about its own capabilities, its own level of power, fuel, the things that power it. And I really like this example as an example of uh, the fact that technology is given a voice as opposed to us talking to it. And I think that his, pers his uh, uh, and the reason behind the project is um, really interesting because it also tells us about how much of technology is, in a sense, happening away from our understanding. We don't read code. We're not going to go and download the firmware behind a piece of connected technology that we own. Uh, but he's making that easier by it talking to us through this installation. And of course, it's a piece of art, but you have to think about what happens behind these closed doors of these products and what we can actually understand. I think we understand very little of how these connected experiences work, and that translation is often um, not done particularly well. 
Another art project is uh, Wesley Goatley's uh, The Dark Age of Connectionism, uh, which is a Echo, uh, an Amazon Alexa, and um, a, uh, I think, a dot talking to themselves based on the amount of noise that you create around them. So in order to make them hush, you have to hush yourself and you have to try to make as little noise as possible. And I think that's a great provocation to also say every movement that we have now with the phones we own, the cameras that are around us, the devices we're buying in the home becomes part of data that is being taken on board by a series of third parties. And we don't quite know where any of it goes, but it is part of an emerging domestic landscape of sorts if you've been one of those people that bought uh, those um, voice assistants. And uh, I wanted to um, uh, mention Chimney because I think that it's a, uh, I knew that Nigel would be here. And I also think that the landscape of determining what stays in the home and what goes out is absolutely um, an essential conversation, but a conversation that I'm not sure most people are ready to have. So N-Cube, Data Brick, which was just a little idea that um, we had as part of the Good Home Project and Chimney, are services and products that are out there to keep your domestic data private and to then decide who you share that data with. Is the average person, the average consumer ready for that conversation, willing to think about information that they might be producing in such a granular way with such a level of control? I don't know, but I think that products are there and services are there and offered right now. And I hope that they do well because I think that they continue to make people think about what is private and what is public. Because ultimately, and this is my last slide, um, ultimately uh, the government is in a position of helping us mitigate the scenarios that we imagine where there is a loss of privacy at every level, that social media is no longer a safe space. We have this really, I think, expectation that our government and regulatory infrastructure is there to support us. And really the last time you could say that they did that was the Public Health Act of 1866, which made it compulsory for a household in the UK to um, stop having uh, basically farm animals in front of their homes because they'd taken their farm animals from rural areas into cities. And that was creating all sorts of uh, health and safety issues. Um, but also that they had to take the bathroom indoors because water management and cholera was uh, really a problem and millions of people were dying. It also meant the councils had to offer sewage management and had to somehow build a whole infrastructure there to make our lives safer. And I think that we're there possibly again thinking about what infrastructure should be offered publicly, should be offered by our boroughs, our councils, the government to protect us in this new landscape. And uh, some laws are being passed in the United States, some laws are being passed in Australia, more and more laws are being passed around security and the internet of things. But I think it really is about this, what happens privately, what happens publicly, and how can we protect ourselves. 
I thank you very, very much for taking the time for lunch. And um, I'm here for questions. <coughs> Alex, I'm just going to kick off with a question. Um, you're talking about earlier on about sort of fear and, and sort of maybe nervousness around people introducing IoT into their homes. Um, how do you think, apart from the support that you're talking about through sort of local government, what kind of mechanisms do you think could be used to sort of allay some of those fears and to educate people? Well, I don't think that people need education. I think that people will buy piecemeal. Uh, something that they might try, and they will see whether it works for them or not. Um, and every single context, socioeconomic, family-based amount of space available makes that purchase a different purchase. And so I think that people will, every Christmas will make a particular purchase and attempt a purchase with something, and they're both seeing whether their family life is suited to that connected experience, but they're also seeing what else happens in the world. So um, all of the anxiety that we have around voice assistance, I think, are, is really, um, in a way, justified. Um, and people I know, and, and you know, early adopters, as it were, uh, some of them have adopted it, and it's great, and the kids use it for all sorts of things, and others had to put it in a drawer after three months because it was sort of driving someone in the household crazy. And that difference is, is really real. We don't, you and I, don't live in the same ecosystem of home appliances and of furniture at all, even though we might be in vaguely the same uh, age range. And so I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule around um, how we might talk to people about these things. Um, I think organizations that are consumer reports, uh, which on all of these organizations have a role to play in helping people think about what they might, you know, what their lives might look like with a connected product. But ultimately, it is really a trial and error process. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, with your overview of uh, IoT for the home, are you starting to see? any companies who are producing uh, products where sort of the privacy angle is actually a competitive parameter that they're trying to emphasize, or is it still early days with that, or are there inklings? I think, um, well, a few years ago, uh, people were really, really very interested in selling people a lot of um, security products, so connected cameras, locks, etc. I think it requires a consumer and a household to have a very particular set of anxieties in order to make that kind of purchase. And so those companies usually tend to pivot their line of products after a little while because it will appeal to a market that is possibly a more rural market, uh, high value housing context, uh, perhaps uh, someone who is you know, a little bit richer and that's a market, but it's not a great and huge market. And so security is never really the most appetizing angle uh, to sell a connected experience for people. Uh, when uh, interviewed, some of the most, I would say, active uh, consumers of connected home experiences uh, will be asked, so have you got you know, connected cameras and connected security, this, that, and the other? And they say, no, I just have great insurance. 
And so even in their perception of risk, uh, and the perception of risk around these things, I think, is um, not front, uh, it's not front of mind because it's not fun. And I think a lot of people want to buy the future of their life as an idea of progress and as an idea of fun and excitement. And so there are people selling sort of security-focused um, voice assistants, for example. So something called Snips is a company that makes a voice assistant um, secure and open source as well. All of these things exist, but whether they make it to a mass market offering and whether they can entice people into essentially a low-level anxiety around everything, I haven't seen that so far. Yeah, of course. I, I was thinking more of um, not so much about uh, anxiety, but if, if we have sort of uh, thermostats that are, that are smart thermostats, you have connected toilets, for instance, you have uh, video, everything that, that's happening. And for instance, you go on holiday, uh, it's, it's not an anxiety to have, but you want to make sure that when you put everything on holiday mode, that that information isn't actually being harvested. And so, well, that's a fantastic opportunity to... Uh, to, burglar, bur, you know, to be a burglar mm. with this particular house. So I'm just wondering, mm. you know, in certain other areas, you're finding intermediaries who see, see a market niche there to say, well, it's time actually to provide some sort of a, um, a blanket, some sort of a, a way of making that data opaque so that if somebody does hack it, they, they can't say, well, this is absolutely the home that's right for, for us to, to visit because everybody's on holiday. Um, so... Yes, that exists. People do build um, specific products offering with, you know, security built in, whether that's privacy by design at applied in the engineering sort of process. Um, whether I have seen this as being a differentiator on the market, not quite, because I think that the amount of technical literacy required from a household would have to be quite high to even understand what that means. And the differentiator on, um, we really are talking about the John Lewis experience of buying connected products. So if it's not um, sat next to three other things and this one has like a lock on it saying super safe, um, you know, that world still doesn't quite exist. Retailers still don't quite know what to do with smartness in, um, in the mass market. So yes, if you're geeky enough, you will find the solution that makes sure that your data is secure within particular contexts. What I have seen more of are insurance companies who are getting very, very smart about producing offers that cater to a world where someone might have a few devices. And they recognize that that person is probably more technology, uh, technology literate, more interested in some of the uh, granularity around what happens to their data, and therefore they can sell them a particular package of home insurance that caters to that environment. So I've seen more uh, an advanced uh, level of literacy on the insurance sector than I've seen necessarily consumers being that uh, concerned. Hello. Hello. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question which you probably know is close to my heart, which is whether the home as a concept needs better definition and protection um, in law. And we, we've had um, the last few years where governments and regulators around the world have identified that personal data 
has, has a, a, um, a specific need to be protected. And with GDPR and, and things, the, the idea of the person and their data um, has come to the fore. Um, Tim Berners-Ali is, is looking at how we have personal data logs and we can take control of it. And I, I, I'm very interested in whether the home is becoming an entity um, that it's, it's generating so much data, both for it, about it, and, and by it, that, that does the home need some kind of definition and perhaps regulatory protection uh, in this new data world? Well, the problem is it already has regulatory pr protection in some sense, which is um, exemplified very recently by, um, I'm going to get this completely wrong, so please uh, correct me if you remember the details, but a man who shot another man who was robbing his home, um, because it's the sanctity of the home in law is enshrined. The problem it represents for us as a society is uh, both that, yes, it's producing a ton of data, but also that we decide what data is meaningful to us. So, for example, if uh, someone owns a voice assistant and uh, is abusive to their partner, the chances are Amazon knows this. Where does this go? This certainly does not go to any, you know, NHS services. Oh, we think this person might be in an abusive relationship and we're Amazon and we're going to own that piece because we think that for the public good, what happens indoors is important within a, a criminal context. That doesn't happen at all because there is the sanctity of the home as a place that neither Amazon or any other voice assistant services uh, wants to necessarily take control of um, in such a non-commercial way. Uh, the other example I'll give is if a, a person above a certain age is living on their own, which a lot of people are, a lot of people suffer from loneliness in this country, uh, and uh, certainly I think above the age of 60, uh, the number of times that you interact with a family member is less than once a month. If a smart television knows that a person is spending up to 12 hours in front of it, does Samsung have a responsibility to tell local social care services? No, not right now. Because what you do in your home is supposedly your own business. And so I think that we have a very, we already have a quite strict notion of what happens in the home. Um, from a data protection perspective, I think that's one angle, but I think there's everything else. And I don't think that we've really uh, cracked that nut yet. Hi there. Um, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit what you said earlier, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like, and I agree with, if it's what you're saying, that um, then lots that's of caveats, what I said. Lo lots of upfront caveats. Um, that you know, efficiency actually isn't really a great motivator of people's purchase decisions. It's you know, often it's more emotive or slightly irrational reasons that people tend to lead and, and purchase something, or at least at first. Anyway, with that, with that. Well, said, I would disagree with that, but go you ahead. Would? Okay. Yeah. I, well, okay. Well, we did. We both disagree then. Um, I wondered what your take on people's motivations for the most successful kind of IoT products. What is what tends to be driving people's take up of those, in your opinion? I, I mean, to go back to your uh, kind of efficiency piece, I think the efficiency that I really question is the idea of even 
and I think the question behind the whole book is there is really no such thing as a smart home because there is smartness inside your home in small bitty pieces, but this idea of I have a smart home is really fraught. So we have absolutely embraced ideas of efficiency. 99.9% of the products sold to predominantly women um, that relate to the home space. So Johnson & Johnson's um, customer base is 90% women. We buy the hell out of everything in order to achieve a certain set of tasks that we feel we need to achieve. What that has done is now that we need to convince people back to back away from how much we have um, embraced this. And an example is some of the warnings that we have created homes that are too clean for our children. And so we have to get them to play in with sand and dirt, etc. because actually we have just gone all the way with cleaning this home space because that was born out of a world where we were still working in factories and bringing back a whole lot of soot and a whole bunch of other crap. Um, and so we have absolutely embraced ideas of efficiency. Whether that's still, that's a good driver in a new and emerging technology world, no. Um, I think fun, is predominantly what gets people to buy things. And you, you could say if you were uh, a little bit, um, well, I would say you're either selling aspirin or chocolate. And so you're selling something that's a real problem solver. I have this problem I'm doing. I need to achieve this particular thing. Or, oh, it's great and I love it. And a lot of people buy IoT as a I love it right now. The people who need Automation in particular ways are often people with a very, very specific need. And then a market is built up off of the back of those people. So voice assistance, for example, takes you know the last 40 years of um, accessibility research around speech-to-text and text-to-speech technologies, which anybody with a, a vocal disability will have been using for the last 30 years. But you develop it for someone who has a need, and then you sell it as a fun, exciting thing for the rest of the market. So the ads in the underground at the minute um, for Amazon's Alexa are all about controlling music. Nobody needs specifically to control music with their voice, but, oh, it sounds fun. I'm going to buy it because it's 69 pounds or whatever it is. Um, so I think that... Efficiency is a driver. I don't think it's the only driver. And I think most IoT now is um, middle class, slightly affluent person who has enough disposable income to screw around with how their lighting is controlled, their energy is controlled, um, the things around them are controlled. But it's not, a, uh, it's not necessarily a mass market thing yet. Um, I, I had a discussion earlier today. Uh, from the numbers I know of, uh, 27 million uh, Alexas were sold uh, so far-ish. Uh, 27 million iPhones were sold in one week. So we're very far away from a mass market habit around any new technology in the home space. And that 27 million of 
connected uh, assistance is, of course, much higher than anything else that's happened, whether that's connected thermostats, connected light bulbs, et cetera. Thanks. Hi, uh, very good presentation. Thanks. Thank you so much on the smart homes that you have provided. In one of your slides, you had mentioned about domestic data and open data. And if you would like to add more on it, because I would surely be interested in the data which is really available openly. And how well are we privatizing it? Like, this data can be loosely used by someone else. So is there any security measures for that? Well, have you done any thought over it? Like, so, um, thank you. the security, thank you for your question. Um, the security aspect of all of this is um, really very interesting because a lot of these devices are sold as um, leasing services. So you will buy a piece of hardware that you are continuously paying for because there is a digital layer of service provided to you. So whose data is it precisely is an interesting question because it sits on top of someone's service being provided. And because of GDPR, of course, you should be able to archive that and take that out of that particular service, but to go where? So the, the interoperability of, let's say, you buy a particular thermostat and you change smart thermostat companies and you'd like to move over your data to that new thermostat, that world doesn't quite yet exist. We barely have account management for thermostats right now. Uh, the leading companies uh, will make you start an account with an email address and you can't add anybody to that particular account. So God forbid you should be living with more than yourself in your home. Uh, you have to share that account name and password with your loved ones for them to use the same app. It's sort of bizarre and ridiculous. So you're talking about siloed pieces of data that exist across multiple devices. Um, the fact that they're not particularly connected doesn't bother me particularly. I know it bothers some because, again, we don't have a very systematic way of living. So the if this, then that of all of this is, I think, still a hypothesis rather than a reality. <laughs> but if we do want to live in a world where more open source technologies are used, that's really difficult. And for the only reason that if you're a young company, you're a startup in the world of connected products, uh, you will never be able to necessarily secure the hardware from an, an intellectual property perspective because patenting physical designs is not a thing anymore. Uh, your product will be copied by someone else uh, very, very easily with just small changes. And so you put all the value of your company on the data. And so open sourcing that requires you to somehow have a business model where you are making money in a very abstract way and you need to own nothing which you know, a charity might be in a position of doing, a nonprofit might be in a position of doing, um, things that are privately financed in a really odd way might be, but the average commercial company can't. And so that is a really um, interesting challenge, I think, for anything that is open within the home space. Uh, the other element, of course, is how do you speak to a household around their data being 
anonymized and used for someone else. Who is the someone else and how do they benefit is not, again, a conversation that we've been having with people particularly. So those are some of the challenges, I think. I think we have time for one more really quick question. Do you have your hand up or something? Not sure if it's quick, but it's definitely connected to what you just said, which is, have you, have you seen any trend in actually people wanting to use the data to make better decisions? So, so for example, a person could be empowered to understand better how they consume energy in their, in their homes or take decisions about um, things they use or don't use and how they use that, because that's when they, the, all these things around... Uh, threats and fears of data actually becomes an opportunity where people actually are empowered to then operate in a much better uh, way. Yeah, better for who is a very interesting one, which is in the context of energy, and I now work in an energy company, um, energy efficiency is a very weird and abstract thing to speak to someone about because unless their bills represent above a certain threshold of their disposable income, we don't care about our energy at all. It represents a small thing that comes out of our account on direct debit, and it's absolutely not in the landscape of things that we're trying uh, to make more efficient or more use of. But if we're in fuel poverty, then it's a really, really big thing. And it's a big expense, and it represents a big point of crisis. If you're a family and you really struggle to pay your energy bills, you're going to really care about what happens. But do you then have the disposable income to buy a connected product to help you do that? No. So it's this limbo space, especially the energy space, is a limbo space when it comes to how much people really do care. A few years ago, I was involved in uh, building a product on top of a uh, energy display. And this is an energy display that would sit in your home, tell you how much energy was being spent in pounds as well as uh, kilowatt per hour. People found it interesting for two weeks and then it just became another thing in the house that sits there in the corner that you ignore. So the driver for people um, really changes depending on how they're doing financially, who they are, and what they care about. Um, people who are deeply, deeply interested in the energy spend of their kettle um, are not representative of the average household, sadly. So yes, there is a, a sort of opportunity, but you really have to question then who's, who that opportunity is there for and who will benefit from supporting someone who is in fuel poverty. You know, do you want people to commercially benefit from someone's energy uh, crisis, in a sense? Difficult. Can I Sorry, I'm afraid we have to wrap up now, because it's, it's a time, but I'm sure we be around afterwards, Alexandra, take yeah. questions. Excellent. Thank you to everyone for sharing your questions. Um, this was our last lunchtime lecture of 2018. Mm -hmm. Please join us next year. Uh, we'll have a whole new schedule of events. Please check on our website. And please join me to thank Alexandra one last time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.